Guys, let's turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 2. We continue as a young church to preach from our cornerstone out, to preach from Jesus outwards, to understand who he is, that we might better understand who we are and who we are becoming in him. And so we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 2. And before we get there, I'm going to pray for us. Heavenly Father, this text where we see your son and we watch him travel to Jerusalem for the first time is going to invite us to do something that we, frankly, just can't conjure up in our hearts. We can't manufacture it. We can't make it happen. It's going to ask us to do something that's beyond ourselves. And so really and humbly, we come to you and we pray, Jesus, would you bear this fruit in our life? Would you do what we can't do by your Holy Spirit and tune our heart to this marvel and this wonder of this passage? Lord, we plead with you and we ask you in your name. Amen. We're in Luke 2 and we're starting in verse 21. Um, We've been studying Luke chapters 1 and 2 all of December, thinking about the advent, thinking about the coming of Christ. And and really, Luke 1 and 2, it's not just a story, it's a musical I mean, this, this whole play here, this, this acting out is a, is a musical on a stage in line with My Fair Lady, because every time you turn around, a character is breaking out in song. Um, Julie and I lived in India for the past two years, and in India, Bollywood movies are very popular there. And so it was very hard to get used to because there is line dancing and singing in every single movie you watch, even in action movies. So can you imagine... Bruce Willis or Vin Diesel shooting up a room of bad guys and then breaking out in a line dance and singing. I mean, it just doesn't jive. And I was telling one of my Indian friends, I, I just can't get into this, man. And he said to me, if a movie doesn't have line dancing and singing, it's not a movie. It's a documentary. <laughs> so, okay. Well, this Luke 1 and 2 does not disappoint. It doesn't disappoint our Indian friends. It doesn't disappoint us because every time we turn around and someone is being exposed to what's happening here and who has really come and what that means for them and for the world, they can't help themselves but to break out in song, to break out in prophecy, to break out in joy, to anticipate the coming of Jesus. And that's what happens in Luke chapter 2. So let me read for us, starting in verse 21. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given to him by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for the purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought the child Jesus, to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all people a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. 
We've already gotten the setting leading up to this. This is, this is after Jesus' birth, but John preached from the first half of Luke chapter 2 last week. And so we saw that Mary and Joseph are living in Nazareth. They're living in a small town that's in Galilee, which is in the north of Israel. And that's where Jesus is going to grow up. That's where he's going to invest most of his ministry and do most of his evangelism. The problem is the Messiah doesn't come from Nazareth. He comes from Bethlehem, according to Micah 5, 2. And somehow you've got to get a, a woman, a, a greatly pregnant woman, 80 miles south from, from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And John mused that that's no small feat to do, to convince your wife to take a four-day donkey journey south, like from here to Charleston. If Joseph, it had been up to him to ask his wife to do this, the Christmas story would have been over right now because she would have torn Joseph's head off. But God puts it in the mind of Caesar Augustus to issue a decree that the census should be taken in the Roman world. And that amounts to one in four human beings on the globe. Tens of millions of people begin to shuffle. And in the shuffle, Joseph and Mary land in Bethlehem that was prophesied a thousand years before, and Jesus is born in the house of bread, Bethlehem, in the city of David, where David the king was born. And prophecy is fulfilled, and we have this baby Jesus. Well, in verse 21, we pick up the story a week later. It's eight days afterwards, and that's where we find ourselves. And I want us to catch some of the details of this story that are easy for us to miss and, and to picture this scene that's hard for us to imagine because Luke is building these details together to get us to the two prophecies he wants to share with us, to get us to what Simeon's going to say and what Anna's going to say next week when we study her. So verse 21, eight days after Jesus is born, He's circumcised. This fulfills the law. God told the people of Israel, when you have a son who's born eight days later, you're to circumcise him as, as a sign of the covenant. And so Mary and Joseph, they oblige, they do this. And then between verses 21 and 22, we have five weeks happen. Because the people travel, Mary and Joseph travel five weeks later from Bethlehem to Jerusalem, six miles up the road, to do their duty in the temple. Now, Mary and Joseph had to do two things after this baby was born. First of all, they had to redeem their firstborn son. Everybody in Israel had to do this. And secondly, Mary had to offer an, a sacrifice to become clean after her childbirth. So 40 days after Jesus is born, they make the trip to Jerusalem to do this. And, and this is how the scene unfolds. Mary and Joseph come with Jesus in tow into Jerusalem. They make their way to the temple. And at this time, the temple is an enormous complex. And you can think of the thing as, as concentric circles, although really rectangles. You've got an outer court and an inner court and an inner inner court before you get to the actual temple. And this is all bustle. There are people moving. There are things happening. When Joseph and Mary arrive, they're outside of the temple. And all along the outside of the temple, we know that people were selling animals to be sacrificed. So you've got sheep. You've got goats. You've got lambs. You've got birds making noises all outside. And they're probably also inside. So once you get into the inside of the temple, that biggest outer court, that's the court of the Gentiles. Anybody can go in there. And there were probably, because Jesus does something about this, money changers and, and stalls selling animals inside of there. So Mary and Joseph come, and this is probably where they bought the two doves that they're going to offer as a sacrifice. Now, chronologically, if you read the whole story, you understand that this is when Simeon and Anna meet the family. As soon as they get into the temple, this is when these two folks come up to him, them and say their prophecies over them. 
But Luke doesn't record it that way because Luke wants to kind of build the climax. He wants us to put Simeon and Anna at the end so we can really pause to understand what they're saying. And so we, as we read this story, have to understand that after Mary Joseph bought their birds, the words of Simeon and Anna are ringing in their ears as they continue into the temple to do what they're there to do. Now, Mary and Joseph split up at this point. Mary goes to the side door to get into the next court. That's the court of women. Only women can, can come. Only Jewish women can come into this court. And she goes in the side door, and, and she brings the doves that she's to sacrifice for her own purity. According to Leviticus 12, childbirth makes a woman unclean. If you've seen childbirth, you're saying, no kidding. I know that. But according to the Old Testament law, uncleanliness is not just about hygiene, but it's about holiness and wholeness. Everything in the ceremonial Old Testament law that talks about being unclean and getting clean and washings and sprinklings is talking about and pointing us to the idea that God is holy and God is whole. There is no part that is wrong with him. There is no part in error. And so all of these laws, according to this one, points us to the holiness and wholeness of God, and Mary must offer a sacrifice to become whole and to become clean. Now, she had to wait 40 days to do this, which is why we're so far after Jesus' birth to enter the temple. And then she's instructed to sacrifice a lamb, to give a lamb as an offering if she can afford it. And if she can't afford it, she can give two birds, two, two doves or two pigeons. And that's what Mary does. Mary and Joseph, they don't have a lot of money, and so they offer the bird sacrifice. They offer the cheaper of the two. And according to Leviticus 12, 8, when this happens, the priest shall make atonement for her and she shall be clean. Now, I want you to get just the incredible irony and power of this scene because Mary and Joseph is split up. We don't know who's holding baby Jesus. They didn't have to bring Jesus, but they do. And Mary goes in this side entrance and she, she may be holding Jesus and she may be holding two doves and she gets in the court of the women and there's a Levite there to take her sacrifice and he's asking her, obviously she's a new mother, what is the sacrifice that you give for your atonement? What will you give to be clean? And Mary's standing there with Jesus and two doves and she has no idea what it is she holds in her hands and she hands the doves over and that's the sacrifice for her to be clean. Isn't that incredible? We're, we're just, we get a glimpse into this power and, and Mary is totally, I mean, this is all lost on Mary. Well, it's equally as powerful if Joseph is holding baby Jesus because Joseph doesn't go to the side entrance. He's allowed to pass through right the center of the court of women. He walks through where the women are because he also has to do something. He gets to the innermost court before you get to the temple. That's the court of Israel. And only a clean Jewish male can get inside this inner court that, that really is the court where the temple is. He can't go in the temple, but he gets inside this court. And the only people that are going to be there with him are clean Jewish males to emphasize the God you serve is a holy and a whole God. And no uncleanliness can come before him. And so you can imagine uh, um, Joseph there, and what he's supposed to do is to pay the redemption price for the firstborn son. So when uh, Israel was in Egypt and the Passover happened, the angel of death passed through Egypt and slaughtered the firstborn son of the Egyptians. But where there was blood on the doorpost, he passed over the firstborn sons of Israel. God said, those firstborn sons are mine. I spared their life. I resisted the angel of death from killing them. And so you must buy them back if you want them. 
If you want your firstborn son, the son that opens your mother's womb, you must buy it back for a price of five shekels. So that's what Joseph is going to do. He's in this innermost court. And, and again, we're just dripping with symbolism here because Joseph is there to redeem Jesus. I mean, can you imagine that? And he's standing there with Jesus in one hand and maybe five shekels in the other hand. And the priest is asking him, what is the price of redemption that you will give? And he's looking at Jesus and looking at the coins and he gives the coins. He has no idea what's in his arms. Or we don't actually literally hear that he hands over the coins. There's something else that he can do. If you don't want to buy back your son, if you don't want to give the five shekels and redeem your son, you can consecrate your son to the Lord. You can give him over to the service of the Lord. And then you don't pay a redemption price because he's God's, right? That's what happens when Hannah brings Samuel to the temple and says, this is the Lord's. Take him. He's yours. Joseph might have been doing this with his son, Jesus. He might know enough now to say, father, this is yours. Take him. He's yours. I'm not even going to buy him back. I have no claim on him. He's yours. And that all of that is happening in this scene. And, and we get to read just the power and the excitement of this. We tremble to think that at this point in the story, Jesus, little baby Jesus, six-week-old Jesus, is about 50 feet from the Holy of Holies. He is as close as he's going to get to the temple and the Holy of Holies where God's presence, his glory dwells. There is a sheet standing between him and his father and the presence of God, a sheet that he is going to tear in two when he is sacrificed on the cross. And nobody sees this. Nobody knows this. Nobody understands what's going on. You have this crowded scene. You have sheep bleeding. You have birds chirping. You have people milling about. You have sacrifices going up. People are making loud prayers. Priests are taking money and exchanging things for sacrifices. And nobody in this whole scene of pushing and pulling sees this little couple from Galilee making their way into this big old temple and paying the redemption price and offering these sacrifices with who will be the savior of the world. Nobody sees this. Well, nobody except for two people that are there on this very day. And we're going to talk about these two people this week and next week. Simeon and Anna, who are a prophet and a prophetess. Simeon and Anna, they've been waiting and hoping and dreaming and praying for a long, long, long time by the time Jesus gets here. If Mary and Joseph had woke up that morning and walked to Jerusalem, which they could have, it's six miles, they would have gotten there in the afternoon. And about that time, Simeon's probably at his house, um, just relaxing. And Simeon is filled with the Spirit. The Spirit comes on Simeon and says, you got to get to the temple now. you got to get up and run. Something's about to happen. And so Simeon, in the Spirit, he rushes to the temple to see what this is about. And he probably goes into the court of Gentiles, and he sees all these people milling around, and he sees families coming in and giving their sacrifices, and he's standing there. And the Spirit comes upon him while he's there. And as this little couple walks in a side door and they start going from stall to stall to look for a pair of doves to buy, the Holy Spirit shakes Simeon and says, that's it. That's him. That's him right there. Can you imagine Simeon's heart beating as he hears this? His palms are sweating. And he just cuts through the crowd and makes a beeline to this family and swoops up baby Jesus in his arms And this is what he says. Lord, you are now letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. We think Simeon's an old man because he's saying, you know what? I can die happy now. I've seen what I came to see. 
For my eyes have seen your salvation. To look at Jesus is to look at your salvation. That you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Simeon, when he sees this baby, when he sees God's salvation, he sees this salvation working out in the two directions that God has always planned from the beginning of time for this blessing to flow. He sees it flow to Israel, the glory of Israel, and he sees it to flow to the Gentiles. This is a revelation for the Gentiles. You know, the Messiah, he screams glory for Israel. This is Israel's glory that's here in this temple. He is the blessing of Abraham. He is the prophet like Moses. He is the king in David's line. And he is the suffering servant of Isaiah. He is those things. To say that the Old Testament was plan A and God was trying to do something with Israel and and the New Testament is plan B where that didn't work and he's trying to do something with the church, that misses the point entirely. Paul will say in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. If you're a Gentile, if you're not Jewish, and you are seeing who Christ is and understanding, you've got to get in line. Because Jesus is first for the Jews and then for the Gentiles. And the reason we're laboring to get this scene, the reason that, that Luke is taking his time here to give us details nobody, nobody else gives us, is because Luke wants us to see just how Jewish Jesus is. This is a Jew. This is a Messiah for the Jewish people. This is the glory of Israel. And so Luke shows us in just a couple of verses the three most important badges of Jewish membership. Think about this. Circumcision, temple, and Torah. Those are the three most critical, important pieces of what it means to be a Jew. If you've been circumcised, if you go to temple, if you read and obey Torah, then you are a Jewish member of good standing. Those are the three badges, and Luke presents all of those in just a couple of verses, and he does it with a twinkle in his eye because he knows that Jesus is going to subvert and fulfill and redeem all three of these. I wish we had time to to just walk through and unpack these, but I'll just say in passing, circumcision. Verse 21, Jesus is circumcised. He, He undergoes circumcision, but Jesus is the fulfillment of circumcision. He is the blessing that was promised to Abraham in chapter 12. He is that sign in in Genesis chapter 17. Galatians 5, 6 says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. If you have Christ, you don't need circumcision. He's yours. He's fulfilled it. We'll talk about the temple. This whole scene unfolds in the temple, but Jesus is the temple. He fulfills the temple because Jesus, the word becomes flesh and he tabernacles. He temples among us. And when someone marvels to Jesus and says, oh my goodness, look at this temple. Jesus says, if you destroy this thing, I'll raise it in three days. He's talking about himself. He is the temple. Well, the Torah, four times in this passage, and you can add another one if you go a little bit further, Mary and Joseph are said to do everything according to the law. They do it. The law says it. They do it. They bring Jesus. They do exactly what the law requires of them. But Jesus fulfills the law. It was important that he obeyed every point of the law. Because in Galatians 4.4 we hear, 
But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his for, forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoptions as sons. Jesus fulfills these things, and gallons and gallons of New Testament ink will be spilled to unpack this. You can go anywhere and see people wrestling with understanding to convince Jews that Jesus redefines all of these elements and fulfills these elements in himself. You know, the reason so much ink has to be spilled on this is because Jews, for good reason, get a little testy when one of these badges is threatened, right? And by testy, I mean a man like Judah the Hammer, Maccabeus, will straight up run to the hills and perform guerrilla warfare. If you mess with one of these badges, you are messing with the Jewish people. And so Luke and his traveling companion, Paul, the two greatest contributors to the New Testament, spend gobs of time saying, this is not a distraction or a diversion or, or a separate path from the glory of Israel. This is the glory of Israel. Everything you hold dear as a Jew, your circumcision, the temple and Torah, all of these things are fulfilled in Jesus. If you want to follow after Christ, know Christ. If you want to follow after God and be his people, know who Jesus is and trust in him. He's the glory of Israel. Well, Luke, Simeon also says that he's a light for revelation to the Gentiles. The Messiah screams revelation to the Gentiles. That's good news for us. Most of us in here, we're Gentiles. We're the second in line. We're not Jews. If you're not a, a Jew, then, then that's what the Bible describes you as a, a Gentile. And without the benefits of temple and Torah, we didn't even know the Messiah was coming. We didn't know what we were going to miss. We didn't know we were looking for a prophet like Moses, for a king like David, for a suffering servant like Isaiah. We, we didn't know to wait for that. And Zechariah told us in his earlier song that we sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. We are plagued by sin and by warfare and by darkness. And there is no struggle for us. There is no searching for God in the shadows. We don't even know the God we're supposed to be searching for. Jesus is the revelation to the Gentiles. He is the one who breaks into that darkness like a sunrise on the shadows. And he reveals himself to us that we might see the salvation of God. We as Gentiles, as people not part of this community, might understand who Jesus is. That's his revelation to us. Well, friends, there are several ways that we can unpack this and apply this passage and go in different directions. We could talk about what it means for Jesus, a Jew, to be born under the law, to redeem those under the law, for Gentiles who constantly go to the law to find ourselves righteous. We can't help ourselves but try to prove our righteousness. And Jesus undoes that. We could go there. We could also go to what Simeon talks about, that, that this salvation is prepared in the presence of all peoples. But right now it's not in the presence of all peoples. It's in a small corner of a temple and nobody even knows it. How does this gospel get to the Roman Empire and how does it get to my neighborhood? We could talk about that. We could unpack that. But really, I'm looking at a group of friends this morning who's exhausted. I'm looking at a group of friends who has last-minute shopping to do, who is undone by family drama, who has much to anticipate and worry about and be anxious as we approach Christmas Day. And so I'm going to call us to do something that, that is so difficult and seems so small that many of us are going to miss it this Christmas. I'm going to ask us as a body to do and to respond to this passage in the exact same way that Mary and Joseph respond to this news of Simeon. And we read that in verse 33. 
and his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. They heard it. They heard Simeon talking. They heard him give this prophecy. They heard about a salvation prepared and revealed and glory and revelation. And they marvel. They wonder. They're amazed by what they heard. That Greek word that's used there, that becomes a pet word of the Gospels. That thing is all over the Gospels and for good reason. There's a bunch in the Gospels about Jesus to marvel and wonder and be amazed by. So when Jesus calms the storm and the disciples say, Who is this man that even the winds and the waves, they obey him? They marvel, they wonder. When the shepherds run from this scene in Luke chapter 2 and they come and they come to the stable and tell everybody, we just saw a choir of angels singing to us about the Messiah. Everybody who's there around Jesus' birth, they marvel, they wonder. In Luke chapter 11, when Jesus comes and he heals a man who is uh, inflicted by a demon and is mute, and the demon goes out and the man's able to speak for the first time, the people there, they marvel. They're amazed. They wonder. And 33 years from this day, when Peter will run to the tomb and he will kneel down and expect to see Jesus's dead body. And all he sees are linens neatly folded lying there. You better believe Peter marveled. He wondered. He was amazed and in awe. How could you possibly improve on that posture of worship this Christmas? How could you improve on a posture of bewilderment and dumbfoundedness to see the Messiah and to marvel? Maybe you feel like you've kind of botched it this year and you haven't done that. Maybe you've promised yourself next year I'm going to order my nativity scene in July so I know it's here for December. Um, maybe you just haven't taken the time with your family and your spouse and your roommate and your coworker to marvel. That is the hope of Christmas. Confess that. Zechariah, the first time he got this news, he totally botched it. And he's a priest and he's devout and he didn't even believe that Jesus was coming and so he was struck dumb. If that's your position this morning, confess that to the Lord. We've got three days to wonder and to marvel and to be amazed. Pause today around the lunch table, tonight before you put your kids to bed, tomorrow if you gather with coworkers or you're going to see anybody for a Christmas party, and pause and wonder and marvel. What does that look like? To be amazed. Here, your Savior lies, swaddled in cloths, lying in a manger. Marvel at him. Let's pray. Jesus, we just can't drum up these feelings of wonder and amazement. You've got to do it, and you've got to do it by your spirit. You did it for Simeon. You dragged him to the temple. You put his face in front of Jesus' face, and you caused him to rejoice in the spirit. And you can do the exact same thing for us. So, Lord, I pray we would pause today and tomorrow and Christmas and for the year following Christmas and marvel and wonder at a Savior come. Give you praise in Christ's name. Amen.